We are in John chapter 6, if you will open your Bibles there, and uh, I'm just going to jump right in and get to work. As you're making your way there, I'm reminded of a study that took place. It began actually in the 60s with a Stanford professor. Um, this guy's name was Walter Mischel, and uh, basically what he did is he conducted a series of psychological studies on hundreds of children uh, ages four and five. And you may be well familiar, this is a very famous study where what he did is he brought, they brought the kids and they brought them one by one into a room and they offered them a marshmallow. And they said, here's the deal, this marshmallow is yours. Uh, I'm gonna leave the room uh, and I'll be gone for a little while. They wouldn't tell them how long they were gonna be gone, but they said, hey, we're gonna, I'm gonna leave the room and I'm gonna leave you here with your marshmallow. If you don't eat your marshmallow, when I come back, I'll give you two marshmallows, so you can have two if you wait. And, uh, and so these are four and five-year-olds mostly, and you can imagine what most of them did. Uh, they ate the marshmallow, right? They could not wait, but a, but a few of them waited and received their second marshmallow. Now, that wasn't the end of the, tr the test. The fascinating part of the test was uh, revealed years later. They actually followed each of these children throughout their lives for more than 40 years. They followed these kids. And what they found was that without exception, the group who delayed their gratification and waited for the second marshmallow, they outperformed the other group in every measurable category. They, they had higher SAT scores, they had higher grades, they were more successful in their career paths. And basically what the experiment proved was that delayed gratification was, was pivotable, pivotable, right? Yes, for, uh, I didn't wait for the second marshmallow, clearly. Um, <laughs> was pivotal for the success uh, in life, that, that success is highly correlated with the pain of disciplined patience over undisciplined impulse, right? I tell you that story because as we've seen here in John chapter 6, the big idea is provision. And we look at God's provision for our earthly needs and God's provision for our spiritual needs. And the beautiful thing about God is that he cares for both, right? And he provides for both. The not so beautiful thing about mankind is that like these kids, many of us tend to care more about our immediate earthly needs than we do about uh, our spiritual needs and to place up a higher emphasis on temporary things rather than eternal things. Understand, this isn't a psychological thing. This is a sin thing. This is a part of our sin nature. It all plays into the original lie of Satan. Satan said, hey, you can have it all, right? He, he told Adam and Eve, look, you don't have to wait upon God's promises. You can be satisfied right this moment, and of course he offered a counterfeit. That brings us here to John 6, 24, which is where we're gonna jump in today. Jesus at this point has miraculously provided the bread for the multitudes, and then he sent his disciples away when those same multitudes wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their earthly king, and we looked at that last week. And so we're gonna pick up the story now with Jesus and his disciples. They've gone to the other side of the lake now, and they're in Capernaum, uh, and Jesus has joined his disciples uh, there. Um, so verse 24, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when, verse 25, they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
Jesus answered them, and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So they asked Jesus here, hey, when did you get here? When did you come here? And Jesus just ignores the question. He goes right to the heart of the matter, as he does with us so often, and he just gets right to their, the motivation of their hearts, and he says, look, you're not seeking me to feed your soul. You're seeking me to feed your face. That's basically what he tells them. Now, uh, several points of application as we go through here. Number one, uh, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Sometimes people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Sometimes people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. This is a true statement for many, uh, sadly, in the church today and even here at Reliance Church. You may be following Jesus for the wrong reasons. And the attitude for some people is this. Hey, as long as the Jesus thing works for me, I'm in. As long as Jesus is a means to an end and that end is me, I'm all in. I, I, I'm down. This is, this is cool. So they're all about Jesus giving to them and about the abundant life here on earth. But beyond the attraction of what, what I call fire insurance faith, right? Hey, uh, I, I, I'm cool with not going to hell. So the fire insurance of say the prayer, you know, Jesus being my, my savior and all cool, uh, they're interested, but a lot of times people aren't really interested in things of eternal life. Jesus continues, verse 27. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. That word seal, it represents the sign of authentication. In this day and age, oftentimes when a king would send out uh, any form of communication, uh, he would press his signet ring uh, into a, a, a little blob of wax which sealed uh, the, the, the communication. And so when the person received it, they would see, you know, this, they'd have to break the seal. They would see the, the king's signet ring and they would say, oh, this is, this is an authentic uh, message that has, has, uh, has come uh, from the king. I kind of wish we had that in our news reporting uh, today, that we could have a seal of authentication because there's so much false news that, that goes around. Jesus is saying here that the miracles that he performed were intended as a sign uh, and, they, and that God's seal of approval was upon him in that when he would perform these miracles, among other things, they would prove that he, in fact, is the real deal, right? And, um, and so this is, this is uh, the, the, the thing that, that, hey, my miracles authenticate my message, right? And that the miracles are intended as a sign. They're not intended to satisfy the temporary appetites of the people. My feeding you, um, really, yes, I satisfied your temporary appetite, but it's really meant to be a sign to serve as a, as a, as a greater sign that you should look to me as the son of God, to satisfy the deeper eternal hunger of your soul. This is, this is the idea. And Jesus says that as his miracles authenticate his message, that it should then move his hearers to labor after that. That's what he says there in verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. That word labor in verse 27, it uh, refers to a committed work, right? And what Jesus is, is not saying here, he's not saying that they need to work for their salvation. Um, but notice, that's what they hear. That's what they hear. Verse 28, 
They said to Jesus, when he says, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which, which, this, which I'll give to you, right? Because God has set a seal on me. They say to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God, right? And Jesus responds in verse 29 and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent, Now, understand what's happening here. As Jesus points them heavenward and to their need to get right with him, they do what so many people do. They automatically start thinking religion. What works do we need to do? Their response, if you were with us when we went through and looked at Jesus encountering the woman at the well, very much like her response when Jesus revealed himself to her and she started to get a glimpse of this thing that he's, this message that he's telling her, hey, you're drinking from the wrong well, right? And so immediately she gravitates to religion, starts thinking in religious terms. Our our fathers worshiped on this mountain and the Jews worship in Jerusalem, which one's right kind of thing. Second point of application. First one, sometimes people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Second point of application, sometimes people seek God in the wrong way. Sometimes people seek God in the wrong way. Understand, inherent in our human condition is a basic understanding that something is wrong. You you can't fog a mirror for very long without realizing that in this world, things are wrong, right? We see a fallen world, we say something's wrong. We see human suffering in this world, we say something is wrong, this is wrong. Uh, We see our own failings and shortcomings, and, and we say this is wrong. And when that happens, one of two things inevitably follows. We either curse God because things are wrong, or we cry out to God, right? And religion is man's attempt to cry out to God. And every religion outside of Christianity cries out to God asking this same question, what works must we do? But the right question isn't what work must we do. The right question is what work needs to be done? Big difference between the two. It's not what should I do to make this wrong right. It's what this wrong does need to be made right. What work needs to be done, right? And that's what makes Christianity different from every other religion. Christianity teaches, yes, something is very wrong, but you can't fix it. You need help. And so Jesus responds here in verse 29. He says to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. That word believe there in verse 29, it it means literally something that you are persuaded is true and your persuasion that it is true then moves you to place your confidence in that thing. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, it tells us there, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, right? I believe that this is true, and I place my confidence in it by, with the mouth, making uh, a confession unto salvation, right? Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. I'm going to place my faith in you. Uh, uh, Romans 11 goes, uh, 10, 11 goes on to say, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him, Jesus Christ, will not 
be put to shame. Paul in Acts chapter 17, uh, he said, God commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, Jesus Christ. He has given assurance of this to all by what? By raising him from the dead. This is the gospel. The gospel message teaches that all are sinners by nature and by choice. That, that you and I, we are born natural sinners. You see that reflected in a two-year-old. You don't have to teach a two-year-old, hey, stop sharing your toys with your brother. No, you, 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 no, don't do that. You, you, you grab that toy out of your brother's hand. You hit your brother over the head with that toy. You say, this is my toy, right? You don't have to teach your two-year-old that. It just comes very natural to them. Why? Because we're sinners, right? Sin means to miss the mark. The mark is God's perfection, right? And we have all sinned, the Bible says. We have all fallen short of the, of the glory of God. And the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, right? You do your job, the end of the week, it's payday. Pay me what I've earned. The Bible says, hey, congratulations, you've earned death. That's what you get for, for who you are and what you do. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That, that when we believe upon Christ, we believe that he is the son of God come to, to take away our sins. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that if we believe upon Jesus Christ, if we confess that he is Lord, we, if we repent of our sins and turn to him, the Bible says that we will be saved. Ephesians 2, verses four through nine, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. And let me just hit the pause button right there. Some people, they relate to God as though he's an angry God, as though, you know, he is, he is just ticked off and, and, and he is just out for, to get you. That's not the heart of God. God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. And so, the, so uh, Paul writing to the Ephesians says, God's rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us, here's the key, in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you don't earn a right standing with God by doing good and trying harder. You get right with God even though you're a sinner because Jesus came and gave his life on the cross for your sin. He who knew no sin, the Bible says, became sin for us. It literally took our sins upon him. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God, not by our works, but in him, in Jesus, in the works that he's done. Now, notice their response, verse 30. Therefore, they said to Jesus, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them uh, bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that, all, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up the last uh, day. And the Jews then complained about him. Because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Third point of application. First one, sometimes people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Second one, sometimes people seek God in the wrong way. Third one, sometimes people want a God that doesn't require faith. Sometimes people want a God that doesn't require any faith. Remember, Jesus has just fed this multitude miraculously, right? 5,000 men. You had women and children, maybe 15, 20,000 people. He took a little boy's, you know, lunchable and, and, and multiplies it miraculously and feeds them all with leftovers. They get, you know, doggy bags to spare, right? And now the people are saying, well, what miracle are you going to prove that, that you are God? And you can ju just see Jesus going, huh, what? What miracle? Like other than, you know, miraculously providing for you all. You know, it just illustrates that saying, there's none so blind as those who will not see, right? Actually, this is a poor attempt at manipulation on these people part, right? They say, hey, Moses gave us food every day. So do that. We want food all the time. We, we, I want, you know, a my, my son, when he, when he was an, an actor, Willy Wonka, the, the chocolate company, sent him a golden card with a phone number, and he could call it anytime he wanted, and they would ship free candy to him. Like just, you know, they just ship it. He could call it, and just unlimited, right? Supposedly lifetime supply, and when he quit acting, that miraculously went away. So, um, but, but the thing is, is that this is a poor attempt at manipulation on their part. They're, they're like, you know, it's all about the appetite of their flesh. And Moses gave us food every day. And Jesus is telling them, Moses didn't give you that food. It came from God, right? And, and he's the one that gives you the true bread of eternal life. Now, that phrase, true bread, in verse 32, it's a Greek word, alethenos. And, and here's what it means. It means that which has not only the name and the resemblance, but it has the real nature corresponding to the name. I'll say it in very similar but just slightly different way. That which is real, that which is true, that which is genuine in every respect, and it corresponds to the idea signified by the name, right? Jesus is saying, the Father gives you true bread. I'm the true bread, right? Not only the name and resemblance, but the real nature, corresponding to the name. And so they say to him in verse 34, Lord, give us this bread always. And you might think they're saying, okay, we'll take, we'll take you, the true bread. That's not what they're saying. When they say this bread in verse 34, they're not talking about the true bread that Jesus has just talked about. 
They, they use the, this name uh, uh, bread, which in the Greek is uh, artos, and it signifies a small loaf or cake comprised of flour and water. And interestingly, artos, in, in the root uh, of that word, uh, it, it means the earth, right? And, and so what they're saying is, Lord, just feed us physical bread now. That's all. Just keep giving us the physical bread. Be the means to our end. Uh, be our genie in the, in the bottle that grants us our wishes. Be the pinata that we can beat upon in prayer and outcome all the goodies, you know. This is, this is what we want. But when Jesus explains that the Father's will for them is so much more, they just simply will not hear it. They simply will not believe it. The, the, notice again, verse 41, 42. The Jews then complained about him. Because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? Hey, we know this kid. Like our kids used to play with him in the, in the cul-de-sac. Like, like we remember this kid. What, what's he mean? He's the true bread that comes down uh, from heaven. And they complained about him, which, you know, why should he be any different? They're, they're, they're singing Moses' praises. They complained about Moses too. Back in, in the day when Moses was provided, would you bring us out here in the wilderness to starve to death, you know? And, and, all, and so, you know, their problem is intensifying. They won't hear, they won't believe, and it, now it's only going to get worse. Jesus is going to double down. Verse 43. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, whoever, everyone uh, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen uh, the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall uh, give uh, is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, these are people who won't eat pork. You know, they won't eat shellfish. They're like, wait, what, what's he talking about? <laughs> you said what? Eat your flesh? Like, what, what on earth? Again, application. Sometimes people follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Sometimes people seek God in the wrong way. <clears throat> Sometimes people want a God that doesn't require faith. Sometimes, point number four, people have a hard time understanding God. You ever have a hard time understanding God when you read the Bible? You're like, what? Right? Sometimes people have a hard time understanding God. Reminds me of a story. <clears throat> we, uh, we went on a missions trip years ago um, to, uh, to Indonesia. And, uh, and one of the guys that went, his name was Jay. He was part of our team. Uh, had a very weak stomach. Trust me, you don't want to go to Indonesia if you've got a weak stomach. Right? They, their food is based on a dare, all of it. Um, and... and uh, and so, you know, just he's getting, he's skinny to begin with. He's just getting thinner and thinner and thinner and just, you know, 
complaining about the food left and right. And so then <clears throat> he hears him say one night, hey, we're having a hot dog for dinner. And he's like, oh, finally, yes. And so the food comes and it's not, you know, it doesn't look like hot dog. It just looks like, you know, steak. But he doesn't care. At this point, it like is normal. He's chowing down and, and just, oh, man, I'll take seconds, you know, kind of thing. And so our host looks over at him and says to him, uh, you like that? He says, oh, yeah, this is great. He says, uh, yeah, it's real hot dog. And then all of a sudden it clicks with him. He's like, what? He's like, yeah, you're eating real hot dog. <laughs> He's eating dog meat, right? Having seconds. What happened? Jay heard the words correctly. He just misunderstood them. He misinterpreted them right? And that's what's happening here. They're hearing Jesus's words correctly, but they're misinterpreting what he's saying. Jesus is talking about the spiritual. They're stuck on the physical. Jesus is talking figuratively, and they're hearing literally, right? Now, what exactly is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection on the cross, now, this is where it's helpful to keep verse 4 in mind, right? Remember, John made the point of telling us that the Passover was drawing near. <clears throat> and the symbolism of the Passover is key. That, you know, when the angel of death came, what were the Jews to do? They were to sacrifice an unblemished lamb, and they were then to take the blood of that lamb and affix it on the doorpost of their house. That when the angel of death came, he would pass over their house. And, you know, at Jesus' last Passover, he explained this further. I'll put it on the screen for you, Luke 22. Tells us there, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, was that bread and was that, that cup the, the, that he served, was that literally his, his body and his blood? No, it wasn't. And I could go off on a tangent here and talk about, you know, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which, which another religion teaches, uh, where it actually becomes the, the literal body and blood of Jesus. Um, but but, but that's, that's not true. That's not true. This is symbolic, Right? Now, here's the thing. What Jesus is saying to them here, it's, it's figurative, it's not literal, but they're hearing it literal, and, and they just aren't getting it. A couple of quick applications just on this point. Number one, some things in the Bible are confusing and hard to receive. They just are. The Bible has some hard truths that we have to receive. Hard truths about homosexuality. Hard truths about family structure. Hard truths about submission in marriage and submission to government and so on. Now, when you don't understand Jesus, let me just say this. The last place to discern truth is in a group think exercise with other non-believers. That's the last place that you're going to find truth. And notice in verse 52, that's exactly what they did. They quarreled among themselves right? And so they're seeking to find truths among themselves, and you're never going to find it that way. You will never discern biblical truth in a debate with unbelievers. The Bible says this, Proverbs 25, verse 2, it is God's privilege to conceal things, and it's the king's privilege to discover them. Now, how do you discover biblical truth? By searching God's word. 
That's how you discover biblical truth. <clears throat> now, Jesus has not yet gone to the cross here. He hasn't died. He hasn't shed his blood. But this is where he's going, and this is the message that he's preaching. Now, how could these people have known that? Well, the Old Testament scriptures give us a picture of this exact work. I don't have time to do this, but I'm going to. It's not in my notes. But in Psalm 22, we, we have, now we remember Psalm 23, right? And we looked at this last week as Jesus is providing for the multitudes. He has them sit down in the, in the grass, and then he provides for them. And we remember Psalm 23, a picture of, of uh, the, the Lord shepherding his people, right? makes us lie down in green pastures, leads us beside the still waters. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, right? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My, my cup runs over, right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So we've got this beautiful picture of, of God providing for his people. Well, in Psalm 22, we have this picture of the suffering of the coming Messiah. And it says some amazing things. Now, they had these scriptures, Right? Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? These are Jesus' words, which he will utter on the cross. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. He goes on and says in verse 6, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. I'm going to come right back to to verse 6 there. But then he goes on to, to say in verses 14 through 18, I'm poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. And my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. He's talking about <clears throat> the dynamic of when somebody is crucified. And the Romans are crucifying people left and right. This was a common uh, punishment that they would do. These people are seeing it every day. They would crucify people who had defied Rome all along the main roadway, right? And um, so, so this, is, this is very familiar. And then Jesus goes on, to, or the, the psalmist goes on to say this, um, they pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them and my clothing, they ca- and for my clothing they cast lots. The psalmist said this, they have these scriptures, And then back in verse 6, I am a worm and no man, right? Now, the word worm there in the Hebrew, it's the word tola. And and it's referring to the tola worm. And what the tola worm would do is it would affix itself to a tree, and it would have its offspring there with it, and it would then die on that tree, and its offspring would feed upon its body. And then what would happen is there would be a scarlet stain that would be on that tree. And the, the, the offspring would, li- would, would then live, the tola worm would die having given its, given its life for its offspring, and then three days later, this scarlet stain would become pure white, and, it would ju- and, and then it would just flake off, and away it would go, right? And so here's this picture of, of you know, this beautiful picture of Jesus who would give his life. You know, we sang it today. Uh, sin had left a, a scarlet uh, stain. You washed it white as snow, right? And, and so there's this beautiful picture. They should have known all of this stuff, searching God's word. But here they are. They're arguing amongst themselves. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in the garden in John chapter 17, we'll get there eventually. His prayer to the Father, make them holy 
by your truth, not by them finding the, you know, holiness by arguing amongst themselves, unbelievers with unbelievers, trying to figure out the truth. No, make them holy by your truth. <clears throat> Teach them your word, which is truth. We read in Acts chapter 17 about the people of Berea. It says the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. And what did they do? They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. They weren't arguing amongst themselves. They were seeking the truth of God's word. Second uh, point of observation just here in, in our text is that a casual relationship with Jesus isn't the same as a committed relationship with Jesus. What do these guys say? They go, hey, we know this guy. <clears throat> we saw him growing up. We know his mom and dad. How can he say that he came down from heaven? You know, some of you, you grew up in church. You, you, you went to Christian school. You went to the camps. Uh, you went to youth group. You grew up with Jesus. But listen, being familiar with Jesus isn't the same as being a follower of Jesus. And not only is it possible for you to be familiar with Jesus and never really know him, Jesus says it's going to be the reality of many on the last day. Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, here's what I love about this story as we're going through it. He's telling them the truth, and they are reacting poorly. And what he doesn't do is, you know, hire some, you know, advertising firm to say, hey, why, why isn't our product doing so well? Oh, well, you got you to change, you know, it's not scratching people where they itch, man. You got you to make adjustment here. No, Jesus doubles down. He just keeps saying, here's the deal. Here's my message, whether you like it or not. He doesn't change his message to fit their liking. Understand, truth by definition is narrow. It's narrow. And when you're confronted with the truth, you've got two options. You can, re you can reject it and just keep on going your way, or you can receive it and you can adjust your way to the truth. And so Jesus doesn't change his message. He doubles down and just keeps going. Verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Remember, he says this on the heels of them saying, how could this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. I am a worm and no man. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And therefore, verse 60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? 
What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And from that time, many of his disciples worshipped him as Lord. No. They went back and they walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the 12, you guys want to bail also? Do you also want to leave to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Seems an odd way to complete this story. It's actually a perfect way. This event connects us not only to the events of this first Passover, but they also connect us to the last Passover when Judas will betray Jesus at that last Passover. And like Judas and like these people in Capernaum, the issue is we have a choice. We have a choice. We can reject Jesus and keep on going our own way, or we can receive Jesus and we can adjust our way. And the choice is up to you. I'm going to close with four questions, and we're going to close in prayer. Four questions, if you're taking notes, put them on the screen, and they'll be up afterwards as well, so you don't have to race to get it done. Question number one, what are some of the hard things that Jesus says that you or that others struggle with? This is a fruitful conversation. Take a walk with it. Second question, in what ways are you or others tempted to follow Jesus for the wrong reason? These folks, Jesus says, you're not following me because you, you want the bread that I offer. You're here for the freebies, man. You're just looking for more free stuff. What role, thirdly, does works play into the Christian life? As Jesus talked about the need for work, what role does that play? Fourth question, what habits differentiate a committed relationship with Jesus from a casual relationship with Jesus?